1: foundation arvind gupta the reason that people are talking about india is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years enjoy this week's show welcome to behind the markets here in business radio powered by the warren school i'm your host jeremy schwartz global head of research at wisdom tree my co-host is warren finance professor jeremy siegel author of stocks for long run and the future for investors Please note: I'm Regard, representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom affiliates. We're gonna have a really exciting show for the hour. We're gonna have two friends of the program who've who've been on before. Uh, gonna be teaming up to create some ETF models portfolios that are. Active and low cost would be exciting to get their perspective on what's happening in the markets. The big factor rotation. They're big, big experts on the markets and the type of styles that have been working. Um, but we're also going to be getting Professor your your latest take. What you know, been the huge rotation in the market, Professor, from from the highs of some of these tech stocks that have been selling off. What's your what's your latest?
3: Yeah, uh, uh, I mean it's continuing at a slower pace. I mean yields have, have calmed down. Uh, you know, we we, we had spiked the ten year at once. 75. Now it's 163. Even then, uh, that just sort of slowed down the selling of the rotation. So uh, over the last week, it's uh, been pretty static. And I don't think this you know, uh, really portends that well for the growth investors. I think people are beginning to see as the economy opens up, um with yields likely rising and normalization uh you know so, uh, buying at these astronomical prices and it's and it's those you know the Kathy Woods uh, type of stocks that are are under pressure and I think will continue under pressure we we've had some good CPI reports um today on uh the uh, uh personal consumption expenditure which the fed looks at um, and and actually on the CPI and the PPI, I don't expect the infl- I, uh, takes inflation to actually uh, show up um, in next month's report. I think that's when we're begin going to really see it—the opening up uh, of the economy, the pressure on prices, and it's coming from so many different areas uh, in the economy, uh, and and a surge of spending. Uh, you know, virus cases are kind of flattening out, but, but the deaths are going down, and the it, it, because the virus cases are skewing towards the younger cohort that are not getting as sick with uh, the virus, those that have had... The vaccines, uh, it is, uh, you know, it, it the, the immunity that it, it, it is giving, uh, no, no definitive study yet, but as, is is all that has been promised, which is, you know, 95% and nearly 100% against severe cases. Um, and you really get the feeling that that is going to spur the economy, uh, in, the, in, in the springtime.
1: You know Professor, last week we were talking about the inflationary pressures you see the tenure um you know we've been talking you've been talking about two percent on the tenure for a while, but it I, it was the first time I actually think I heard you say three percent potentially, and one of our listeners was was listening to your calls for a twenty percent increase in inflation and and they were sort of wondering how you get to that twenty yeah. percent number and and what you're thinking about on on those pressures over time,
3: yeah. And, and 3%, I don't expect until maybe the end of 2022. So that's certainly not an end of year this year. Um, and the 20% really comes from the 20% jump in debt and the 20% jump in the money supply uh, that, uh, that is, as, as we've talked about, unprecedented. Um, and I think that that, you know, 20% spread over three, four years, it's hard to say is that 4 or 5%? per year uh type of inflation uh that I see now it it's hard to pinpoint and make come a little bit early, you know sooner at first and then later uh at at, at another place, but a twenty percent inflation hold a ten year bond, you need another couple of percent right but over ten years <laughs> a two percent a year to to make up for that purchasing power, and that's why I do see that that could creep up to that. To that three uh, percent uh, level um, going onward, but it is mostly based on a on a a twenty percent jump in the m one m two money supply uh, uh, jumps that we have uh, really never seen before, and i 'm using my my economics that i 've uh, you know studied so hard and become a specialty in saying that uh, this has got to feed into prices. Uh, into in in, uh, in the united states
1: I, I want to bring in our guests for one second here because i know at least one of them will have a strong view on that too maybe uh near kazar who's the founding managing member of unison advisors uh bloomberg columnist and 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 return guest and friend of the program and then we have Wes gray ceo of alpha architect near i know you've been writing on inflation any do you want to take a counter take with the professor or any other things on inflation you want to weigh in there ask a question any feedback
2: I would love to ask uh, Professor Siegel two questions, if I might, Professor Siegel. One is, um, I'm wondering whether on inflation, whether you see longer-lasting inflation down the road to worrisome levels. As I'm sure you've been hearing the chatter, a lot of people are worried uh, about a return to a 1970-style stagflation period. Do, do you worry that that could follow an initial uptick in inflation? And the second question I have for you is: Last time I was on the show, we spoke about comparisons to 1999, and I think, if I remember correctly, you didn't feel like the that the, the market was frothy enough yet to really make those comparisons. I'm wondering whether what's happened over the last year has uh, has made the comparisons in your mind to 1999 stronger, no, good, more compelling.
3: Two, two really good questions. Um, you know on the on the question of frothiness, uh you know, I I I I think we're gonna see a flattening and a downward a uh, flattening of tech and those that are really selling at extraordinary levels, a downward tilt of tech, nothing like the crash of Nasdaq, which was eighty percent from nineteen ninety nine and until two thousand and 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 one. So uh really a tilt down uh, relative to value, the continued outperformance, uh, of value. In terms of sustained inflation, very, um, I don't because I, I think the Fed will act against it. Um, it's gonna jump way above their target, but they're gonna say it's a one-time jump. And uh, they're gonna wait until the economy is, uh, you know, booming again. But, uh, it's, it, it, will it set into play inflationary expectations? The the Fed is going to have to step in, and I think they're going to, you know, at the end of this have to produce at least a Um, mini-recession, not a maxi-recession. I don't see inflation like the double digits of the 70s at all, and I don't even see high single digits. But I see, you know, mid-single digits as a real possibility. Um, But the Fed coming in after the surge – Uh, We know they can do it. Volcker did it (laughs) Uh, in in 79 and 80. uh, I don't think we're going to have to push that hard. But uh, with the knowledge that the Fed can, in fact, squelch it, um, uh, I think it'll uh, prevent it from getting out of hand.
2: I agree. Can I ask one more follow-up, Mr. Siegel? I'm curious. You're you're a longtime observer of the Fed, and you've written extensively about it. I'm curious if you have a view as to why during the 1970s, as you know, you know, the inflation rate started to take up really in the mid-1960s. Yeah. And there were a couple of scares. By the late 1960s, the inflation rate was, if I remember, roughly around 6% CPI year over year. I'm wondering why did the Fed take 15 years to act against <laughs> inflation? I agree with you. You're not going to wait 15 years this time around. But why did it take them that long to get get inflation out of control under control? Well,
3: one of my theories uh, that I uh, put forth is what I call nominal interest rate illusion. You know, we've heard about money illusion. People don't, uh, you know, the, uh, just look at the dollar value rather than what is the real value of of what it is. Uh, they were pushing interest rates up and they thought they were being tight but the interest rates weren't going up as much as inflation so real interest rates were actually going down and i i you know uh, not, you know now we talk about real interest rates we have tips we can look at them I mean, and it's become part of our language but if you really you know read back then and the, you didn't get a discussion about real interest rates and then it finally came in and say oh my god you know when if inflation is going at 12% <laughs> 8% interest is not tight <laughs> and you know volcker came in knowing this and all that and said all right and he pushed it up to 20 uh, so i i think that that those were the the mistakes that were made in the late 60s and 70s that kept that inflation growing for so long but I think the the, the knowledge is there certainly uh, you know by Powell by certainly Yellen and, and others uh, that will prevent that mistake from happening
2: fascinating thank you
1: very good um, Professor Eddie Wes any, any comments here to start before we let the professor go
0: no, uh, I listen to what Professor Siegel has to say, and I'll take that as gospel. He's a lot <laughs> smarter than I am. Uh, I,
3: I, You know, I, I, I try to use my historical perspective, being older than any of you guys out there, seeing it all and looking at it all and trying to make historical uh, comparisons, but also knowing when things are different. Too many people look at cycles, oh, this is like this, like this. There's got to be good economics behind it. There's got to be good history around it, and you've got to know what the kind of policy responses are. So I, I try to try to put that into perspective uh, on my predictions. But thank you very much for your comments. Um, and, uh, Jeremy, I guess well, I thanks. will talk to you again uh, next week.
1: Thanks, Professor. Always great to have your, your, your starting comments here. Thank you i are going to turn our conversation with our two guests, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect Near Kaiser, who's the founding managing member of Unison Advisors. Um, Wes, it's, it's great to have you back on Behind the Markets here. You, uh, I guess you just had a big conference, your annual democratized Quant Conference. Um, you want to give us a, a recap of uh, what, what was the, the, the key insights you gleaned sure. from the big conference?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, unfortunately, it wasn't as big as it usually is
1: because of COVID. So we
0: uh, <laughs> we had to skinny it down a little bit. But, um, yeah, I think we learned a lot. The uh, you know, first discussion was by Eric Balkunas, a uh, colleague at Bloomberg of uh, Nears there. And I think his, his main takeaway is something we know because we live it every day. And that's the market in asset management is going towards the ETF. That's where all innovation, all the competition all the uh, exciting stuff is happening, and seems like it's going to continue to happen there. Um, that makes sense to us, but for uh, listeners out there, it might be news to them. The other component, the, or the second session was a group out of Europe who actually went back and studied markets uh, even further than uh, Professor Siegel has, uh, going back to, I think it was up to 1600s back in Amsterdam. And the really big takeaway from, from that group, and actually the paper was discussed by uh, Lee Chen, who, who's sometimes a host here, um, is that really we have seen it all in the markets. Uh, the, you, you name it, like there is nothing really new under the sun. And the, the key things that work or have worked in recent memory seem to have worked, you know, two or three hundred years ago. And that's simply buying cheap, you know, buy value stocks, uh, buy strength, buy momentum, buy winners. And then the third component is trend fall, right? Own markets if they've got strength, otherwise get out of the way. Those basic concepts uh, have been relevant for the past 100 years. And the point of that research was they were relevant you know, for the prior 100 or 200 years. And then finally, the third session was uh, we had a professor uh, talk about thematic ETFs, which are a whole group of ETFs where you know, people are trying to capture new ideas and, and cloud-based computing or, or what have you. And the research there at a high level and as a grouping is, in general, be very careful with thematic ETFs because they tend to be launched on ideas that are overvalued and have a lot of hype. Um, but then the, the speaker the discussed on that paper also highlighted that, well, that may be true for all thematics in general and on average, but there's a lot of nuance. So when you go buy thematic ETFs, just make sure you do due diligence and, and pay attention to the weeds. And that was that was pretty much a summary of, of the entire conference in a minute.
1: That's great. I mean, I you know personally, we we Wisdom Tree, we started thinking about dividends back in two thousand six. Value, you know, tied to Siegel's research. We're we're getting into some yeah. of those more thematic trends recently, and I, I sort of w- wonder myself, like, are you doing this because the stuff is hot, or are some of these these sectors, you know, really mm-hmm. going to have this long term growth impact that, that's going there? And, and do you, do you near, do you have a view on these thematic trends, mega trends? Are you, you're a value investor. How do you how do you reconcile value momentum? Uh, which, which you know, are sort of the other side to these things.
2: Yeah, I mean, Wes and I are in broad agreement in terms of uh, in terms of what the what the what the robust bet is in a portfolio based on the evidence. You know, I'm a big believer in value momentum. Um, like Wes, I'm a believer in using quality uh, in inside of value uh, to try to soften its harder edges. Um, you know, the thematic stuff is harder because it's really forward looking. Right, we don't have we don't have evidence to look at because, you know, by its nature, mostly thematic is about trends that people perceive to, to be coming in the future. And, um, and, you know, I don't quarrel with that. The, the problem that I have is I don't think that I have any I don't have any confidence that I can predict the future or tell you, you know, which of the technologies are going to be the ones that are going to survive and take over or whatever. And then when you on top of that, you have the problem that these products come to market once they're already popular as Wes alluded to. Um, and so by the time you're able to invest in them, uh, you know a lot of the stocks um, have already been driven up, the valuations are high and so on. And so you know, this paper that was presented at uh, Wes's conference showed that you know, there's, there's a significant amount of risk that on the day that you get in, you're going to have some valuation contraction. So the long-term bet might be fine, but you're going to have to suffer um, potentially through some downward pressure after you get in and obviously, that you know, brings in all kinds of questions about investor behavior. Can they really hang on? Are people really making investments in thematic ETFs for decades rather than just a few years? Um, so it's got all kinds of problems. Um, I, that's why I don't dabble in it. But you know, to the extent that people have conviction and they, they're, they're willing to hang on for decades, they really believe in a particular theme, you know, I don't have any problem with it.
1: I mean, these definitely are the opposite of value. Is the uh, the the closest way to say it, right? I mean, they are their sure. mega cap, their mega cap growth, or or not even mega cap. They could be they could be mid cap growth. I guess it'll depend on um, you know you got what uh, are your famous active managers in the ETF world today who who thinks these innovation trends are just beginning and that there's going to be massive explosion in productivity and innovation over the coming five years. But uh, sort of interesting, making the case for active. Active ETFs, Wes, is that uh, and that's something you might believe in, too?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, one of the other things, just to carry on with that conversation there that, that I thought was a nuanced point that was uh, made uh, pretty convincingly, is that these thematic ETFs, to Neer's point, even if the evidence highlights that you're basically buying overhyped, overvalued stuff um, that doesn't work on average over the long haul, If you have an instinct to need to gamble and go pick these stocks because they are exciting, at least buying the ETF version, you're getting a diversified access professionally managed versus, you know, throwing darts at the wall on your favorite stock. So, so the argument was that from a behavioral perspective, if you want to go down that route of, you know, the FOMO bet, Uh, Well, maybe at least a little bit safer to do it via like a thematic ETF than to go try to pick, you know, three or four stocks that you find compelling. So I thought that was uh, an interesting argument that obviously the professor wasn't buying because the professor was, a you know, efficient market, everyone's rational type person. But I thought from a reality perspective that that argument made a lot of sense and was was favorable towards uh, thematic ETFs as a solution for individual investors.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, you see these sectors. I mean, are you better picking those individual banks or just picking the basket of the banks? Same with energy. I mean, it's all, it's, that's, I think that's the use case of these baskets is that most people have a very tough time picking the baskets, but they, they're easy access to these various themes. I mean, that does make a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you get tax efficiency and all the other great things associated with the ETF structure itself. So I can buy that argument.
1: So, so, Wes, let's talk a little bit about the factor rotation. I mean, you guys have value. Uh, you talked a little bit about quality within value and then momentum. What do you see happening? I mean, you, the last six months have been tremendous um, in terms of factor rotation. Mm-hmm. What's going on? How are you thinking about you know the, the long-term merits of all these different factors and what you're seeing really recently?
0: Yeah, I mean, so one of the arguments – four factors in the first place is they give you access to different risk profiles and they do different things at different times and and we're big fans i think near and yourself of just own diversified portfolios strategically of different factors like own value own momentum own quality own all these things because as we're seeing in real time a market can shift from being like a super hot momentum market to all of a sudden momentum is a dead you know, no good uh, investment strategy, and all of a sudden value's awesome. awesome. But the problem is no one I know, even people with 200 IQs, can predict when that's going to happen. So there's lots of action going on underneath the surface, to your point, but I still think it makes sense uh, as a long-term strategic investor to just, you know, spread your bets around and, and own the ones that make the most sense and don't try to think too hard about, you know, trying to time the momentum strategy or time the, value strategy, but I know that's boring advice, but that's all, that's all I got. <laughs>
1: that, that doesn't make good radio. We're talking with Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, Neer Kaiser, uh, CEO, founder of Unison. Uh, Near, do you believe in factor rotation? Do you just believe in, in, in putting them together?
2: I'm with Wes on this. I mean, I haven't seen – I'm open-minded. I'm always open to evidence, and um, I have not seen any credible evidence personally that shows – that you can systematically time the factors. So, you know, given that lack of evidence, I say just own a diversified set of factors um, and, um, and don't, try to, don't try to get too cute. Um, what's likely to happen is if you have the diversified set, assuming that over the long term, the evidence that we have um, is predictive and that you're actually gonna get a premium over the market, you should be able to get roughly, you know, the, the same premium as you would get with any single factor, but with a lot less tracking error um, than, um, you know, relative to the market than any one factor is going to give you. So that's the case for it. And, um, mm-hmm. and you know, while we're, while we're on the subject, I, I have to say that I um, this is probably the best timing I'll ever have in my career. In November, I sat down to write a three-part series on value investing. It, was, it ultimately ran in January. Um, but, you know, I was really bothered by, um, you know, all the arguments that were being made about, and I thought they were careless arguments, about how, you know, this 100-year data set that we have on value and all the literature that we have is completely, you know, uh, should be thrown out because value is underperformed for 10 years or 12 years or whatever you want. Um, and it just seemed to, me like, it, it seemed to me like a lot of those arguments were not, not grounded in a lot of research and evidence. And so I sort of took them on. And, um, and I have to say this, this value rotation came just the time because, um, you know, hopefully this will make people think twice about some of the things we've been hearing recently, um, and not be so quick to give up on, 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 uh, on what I think is sort of settled in the literature or has been settled for a while.
1: Well, is that a case for timing the fact the value factor that it became even more good as like a, I think a cliffassis would say sin a little and you sort of uh, pick up but It become too extreme that it became so cheap?
2: I mean, it's so tempting to go there. I, I will say I don't know if I'd go that far, but what I will say is I think it's a good time for people to look inside their portfolios and see what's in there. Because I, I, my guess is that a lot of people have a lot of growth, a lot of U.S. large-cap growth exposure in their portfolio. Um, and so it's not so much a question of try to time it. It's really a question of look at your portfolio, see whether you're too concentrated in any one particular corner of the market, and use this as a good opportunity to maybe try to diversify further. That's a good decision always. But it's a particularly good time when whatever you own happens to be historically expensive relative to the stuff you, you don't own. That seems to me a, a wise decision, no matter what you know. How, however, you think about timing.
1: Yeah, Wes, what do you think about the various value factors that you see in the market today? You know, there's sort of the traditional, old school mm-hmm. value, which is like a price to book ratio. Um, some of the large value shops were focused on price to book. The Trisha Russell Index has mm-hmm. been a price to book type strategy, which is doing well with this sort of um, you know rate spike higher. Financials doing well. What what do you think about the drawbacks of that, um, and and how you think about other factors within value there?
0: Yeah, so I I mean, at the outset, uh, really the value factor, just to define it so people kind of know what we're talking about here, it's this concept of buying systematically cheap stocks. Um, So, you know, you take, like you said, book to market or price earnings ratio or what have you. And so I think fundamentally, why does any value factor work in the first place? Well, usually when you're buying the cheapest securities, you're going to have to buy the ugliest, the nastiest, the, the worst looking uh, stocks in the marketplace. And to the extent that the market you know, changes its mind, sentiments shift, you kind of get a meaner version and you make your money, right? So obviously, this is like a, a fear trade. You're, you're basically taking advantage of humans, uh, you know, fear factor and value kind of captures that. And so the question is, well, how do you measure that, right? And and one option is book to market, as you mentioned. But then other versions are, and the ones that we prefer are more business buyer metrics. And so I like to focus on just looking at like a basic income statement, for example. Like you have, like any business owner knows, well, we got revenues, um, we got cost of goods sold, and we've got selling general and administrative. If we we map all that, we end up with a thing called operating income. Like how much money does this business actually generate? And then we can take that amount of money that this business generates and we can divide it by the price we got to pay for it. And that's essentially called like an EBIT uh, EV ratio or enterprise multiple ratio. That's our favorite um, because we think it represents like what does the the firm earn? What do you got to pay for it? That seems like a reasonable value factor whereas you look at a book-to-market component, that could also be reasonable. But the issue is that book value um, doesn't necessarily directly translate into earnings power. So, for example, you know Google doesn't have a lot of book value because most of the earnings power doesn't come from Mark's book, but it comes from all the, the brainiacs out in Palo Alto there you know, inventing all their systems and all their search algorithms. So, We think a better way to assess the earnings power or the value of, say, Google is not with book, but with using, you know, operating income. And so, again, we just generally focus on these business buyer metrics as opposed to book to market. But, you know, there's huge thousand paper debates on the subject, and I don't know who's right. But as long as you're buying things that people hate, uh, you know, you're probably going to do okay as a uh, value investor over the long
1: haul. Uh, and now, what about this sort of quality bias that Nir was talking about in terms of, you know, within value, mm-hmm. thinking about the quality angles? What are steps you think about yeah. in, in trying to, to reduce that quality or uh, mm-hmm. sort of the, the junkiest part yeah. of value?
0: Yeah, well, and, and that, frankly, unfortunately, goes directly to the book to market right now. Because if you actually look at cheap book to market stocks, and you say hey what are their actual earnings well half of them are negative so they don't even make money right they just have cheap book they have book value but they're losing their their rear end on actually earning money like how is that a value investment so so but it's also important just in general when you're focusing on the dirtball trash bin of the stock market i.e. the cheap stocks that amongst the cheap stocks we don't want to buy just cheap because sometimes things are cheap for a reason. And in fact, a lot of times things are cheap for a reason, but sometimes the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater, right? So we want to focus in the cheap area because that's where we think on average, you might be able to capture these excess returns over the long haul. Um, However, amongst those, we want to try to find those cheap deals where there's some element of quality, i.e. are they buying back stock? Are they paying down debt? Are they improving their operations year over year? We all else equal, we'd rather have the cheap stock that is, you know, financially sound as opposed to the cheap stock that is a dumpster fire. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's just a common sense thing that a lot of people don't focus enough on. And we just try to implement that in our systems to try to systematically go cheap, but make sure it's the cheap stuff that's also of reasonable quality.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's interesting, um, and certainly what's happened in the last few years is is all the more interesting in this quality section. I mean, the Russell two thousand, which includes, you know, right now it's it's, it's above the thirties of how much of that is is unprofitable, um, and then you sort of look at that versus yeah. the S P six hundred. The S P six hundred, you had to be profitable to get in it, um, which is another small cap index. Um, And, and, you know, you had a massive like a thousand basis point difference between, you know, the Russell 2000 unprofitable index and this sort of profitable company index. And I think some of that is continuing this year where quality has not been useful. It's just been uh, a junk rally. Any, Any sort of commentary on that?
0: Well, that's exactly. I mean, just because what I'm saying makes sense doesn't mean it makes returns in the (laughs) short run, right? Like, like the you know, Ben Graham used to talk about like Mr. Market, like Mr. Market is just this maniac that you trade with. And you may have a gold mine that spits out free cash flow like no other. But if the market doesn't like your gold mine, and it likes Tesla, like, you're not going to earn high returns on your stock. However, We believe, and I think Mir does and yourself, that gravity matters in the end. And at some point in the world's markets, like free cash flows and boring fundamental stuff matter. Uh, And so eventually, you know, buying cheap stuff that's high quality will pay off. But in the short run, I can't control animal spirits and sentiment and who's posting on Reddit. And so, you know, in any given moment, you could buy cheap quality and look like a total idiot versus, you know, the... Teslas and Bitcoin stocks or what have you. Um, so unfortunately, I can't control that. But I think the fundamental principle, uh, you know, focusing on quality that's cheap is, is probably a good idea.
1: You know, we, we definitely share a lot of similar insights there. We have Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, Near Kaiser, who's the founding managing member of Unison Advisors with us for the hour. We continue to talk about factors, the what's going on in the markets, some new models they're collaborating on. We talked a little bit about factor rotation on the first part of the program and, and some of the factors that, that Wes uh, currently believes in, that Near believe in. Nir, maybe you could tell our listeners a bit more about Unison Advisors and your background, the type of work you guys do for clients, and, and how you think about portfolio construction uh, as a whole.
2: Sure. Yeah. So we, um, we manage uh, money for institutions and some individuals. Um, and we are, uh, you know, I would think of us as sort of diversified portfolio managers. Um, you know, we, we try to keep it simple. You know, we believe in broad diversification and that includes, you know, across assets, across styles, as we've been talking about, um, and across geography, um, you know, the more diversification, the better, um, in our view, we try to keep costs very low. So we, you know, we use, uh, in general, we tend to use low cost ETFs for the exposures. We try to keep, you know, our portfolios down to 10 to 20 basis points. On a weighted average basis. So, you know, as cheap as we can get our exposures. Um, and then we try to tilt the portfolios in the direction of, of the, of the assets where we think we're going to get the highest expected return. And that depends, of course, on the asset itself. And it also depends on the market pricing at any given time. So, for example, you know, we think, uh, we think the expected return from value today is going to be higher from growth. Uh, we think that the expected return for emerging markets will be higher in general than U.S. stocks. Um, You know, these things will change over time. Now, we're not going to go crazy. You know, I mean, we're not um, you know, we're not going to we're not going to try to, you know, get cute with binary market timing, pull assets in and out and all of that. But we think it makes sense to tilt the portfolio in the direction where we think um, we have an edge at any given time. And that's that's basically our philosophy.
1: Yeah, and you've been managing these types of models for a long time. Having tracked, uh, we've been we've been in discussion since you know maybe back in like two thousand six or two thousand seven, right? We've been we've known each other for a long time. How what, as, as you think about those tilts, like how do you think about that you know expected return? Where are you coming up with the expected return for EM versus the US, for instance?
2: So you know these are capital market assumptions, and um, and you know for the listeners, uh, to the extent that they're interested in in expected returns and you know, or sometimes called capital market assumptions, you know, you can find them that you can find them on the web, um, uh, that they're, they're, they're publicly available from a lot of places. So JP Morgan and BlackRock and Morningstar and other other folks um, will post their own uh, expected returns online. We do our own in house, our methodology is not that much different from what you would see from others. And I think there's generally this broad agreement about what you're looking at. So for example, if we're talking about stocks, and you're trying to to create your expected return, you're going to look basically at three variables. You're going to look at the dividend yield. You're going to look at your expected earnings growth, and you're going to look at your changes in valuation. Um, and, you know, you're going to make a judgment, uh, you know, as to what those three variables are going to be, and then you'll come up with a number. I think what you'll find when you look around is that there is, in general, more agreement than disagreement at any given time. Um, about expected returns within some variation, obviously. But like to give you a current example, I recently did a survey last maybe four or five months, did a survey of maybe 10 expected returns that are publicly available to see how people felt about the valuations in US stocks relative to developed international and emerging. And I found almost with, uh, I might've found one, one dissenter but there was just widespread agreement across the board that the expected return from EM and developed international over the next 5, 7, 10 years, whatever their measurement period, would be higher than the U.S. And that's not a coincidence. You know, everyone is looking at the same variables. And when you look at the valuation spread, when you look at the expected earnings growth, when you look at the dividend yields, and you sum all those together, you get a number that is higher for overseas stocks than you do in the U.S. So for us, we would look at that and we will say, okay, it makes sense to tilt the portfolio, port- whatever our neutral is, it makes sense to tilt the portfolio modestly in favor uh, of the overseas stocks to try to capture the higher expected return. You're not always going to be right, obviously, but I think you're going to be right more often than not to make, the, to make that exercise worthwhile.
1: Well, how do you think, you know, so talking about tilting and where, you know, like, um, do you want to give some examples of, all right, so here's what a neutral would be today and here's... Where we would go, based on these higher expected returns in foreign, you know, a lot of people have this home country bias. I think that's like the dominating bias in all behavioral finance is that people like to bet on the U.S. winning forever. And but that's true wherever you live, that the people bet on their home market. Um, how do you think about that? You know, diversification and and solving that home bias, and then and especially when you have these higher expected returns overseas.
2: It's a good question because it can get really tricky, right? Once you get into implementation. In terms of home bias, I agree with you. That's the strongest bias that we encounter in our own practice. Um, we, in order to fight that bias, we tend to follow the market cap as a starting point. So today, you know, the, uh, in the US, U.S. relative to global stocks is probably 58, somewhere between 57, 58, maybe 59%. That will vary, obviously, right? It's endpoint dependent. The U.S. has done so well relative to overseas markets over the last 10 years, it's crept up higher You know, In general, I expect that if over the next cycle the U.S. doesn't do as well, then the U.S. share of the global stock market might be closer to 55%, maybe even 50%, whatever it is. So we start with whatever the global market cap is in terms of geography, and then we apply the tilt on top of that. How much we tilt really depends on the client. Um, We try as much as we can to target it to how much active risk they can tolerate. To the extent that they can tolerate more active risk, we will vary from – the global market cap more to the extent that, you know, they'll freak out if, if their returns don't track the let's you know, the global market cap in general index, then, you know, we try to be less aggressive with our tilts. So that's, you know, we, we try to, there's a balance here between the behavioral, you know, the behavioral demons that all of us bring to investing and the quote unquote right math finance answer. Right. And those two things have to be balanced. Um, and so we try as much as we can to target that to the needs of the, of the investor.
1: So Wes, we talked a lot about factors um, and factors around the U.S. Do you want to, any commentaries, we talked a little bit about higher expected returns in, in foreign markets, anything on value, momentum in foreign markets, anything unique or what you see happening in, in those markets recently? Uh, not really. And, uh, you know, because factors, the, like these basic concepts
0: are, are considered evergreen in the sense that, you know, we probably wouldn't believe them if it only worked in Zimbabwe, but it didn't work in France. We, we want these ideas and these concepts to, to apply anywhere. Um, so, so factors work in the U S they work in sell markets, they work in EM commodities. Like we want to focus on things that are, you know, always, always going to be working. And I don't really have any specific commentary on like within the markets, who's doing what and where, but I would like to reiterate what um, Near said and just emphasize that, you know, if you are going to try to time things, it, it certainly does make sense that if, if your dividend yield, I'll make this up, but if your dividend yield in the US is, you know, one and a half, your earnings growth is five, but the thing's selling at a PE of 35, you know, maybe you tilt away from that and you go towards EM where, say, the dividend is three to four percent, the earnings growth is five to ten percent, and the PE ratio is 20. Right. Like it just it makes sense if you believe in gravity and, and, you know, the basics of how markets work, that if you can get a better deal somewhere else, um, you might want to shift your bet a little bit that way. Uh, But also being cognizant of what Nir was highlighting. So sometimes the right answer in theory is not always the right answer to a human because humans like me are crazy uh, sometimes. So um, (laughs) that's
1: that's just something we all got to deal with. That's why you try to automate it and make it, the, make it more like an architect.
0: We try to automate it, but uh, unfortunately, the humans still control the allocation to the computers. And, and sometimes they can get a little jiggy um, with things as opposed to uh, you know sitting in their seats and doing the right
1: thing. Um, human condition, I would say. Talking with Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, Nir Kaiser, founder and managing member of Unison Advisors. Um, yeah, Nir, why don't you go into the? I, I was I was thinking of, you know, you, you and I have had a lot of conversation about the the model portfolio world and, you know, how how advisors sort of leverage technology and, and where you see that space going overall in and how how advisors are served. Any sort of commentary on just the space generally, and then and you can sort of tie in your commentary on on how you think about building portfolios to to solve some of these issues?
2: Yeah, I mean, I have sort of one macro observation, which is, you know, it seems to me that, um, you know, there is there's a lot of fee pressure in the investment management world in general, as we all know. And it seems to me that advisors are in a particularly interesting situation because a lot of them, um, uh, and this is based on the numbers of do- in terms of the dollars that are actually invested in funds across the board, a lot of advisors are still using uh, expensive actively managed mutual funds, where let's call it the average expense ratio is eighty bips, 70, 70 to eighty bips, let's say. You know, a lot of them are more are, are well over a uh, hundred bips. Sorry, one percent. Um, so so their underlying portfolios are quite expensive. Now the thing is, uh, you know, starting. I mean, Wisdom Tree was at the forefront of this um, 15 years ago, but since then, there's been an explosion in various ETFs that will give you exposure to effectively the same strategies that advisors are using in expensive mutual funds in cheaper, much cheaper ETFs, in some cases, 10 to 20% of the cost of what they're paying in mutual funds. And so this presents an opportunity for advisors to shift their books from these mutual funds to the ETFs and shave... I, I can constantly say at least half of the expense ratio is off the books, and this is an opportunity effectively to pass down those cost savings to their investors. Um, significant cost savings without changing anything about the strategy, and I would argue making uh, making making their portfolios even more efficient. Because you know, as Wes alluded to earlier, there are there are there are, uh, arguments for ETFs in terms of you know tax efficiency and, and, other, and other things uh, that make them preferable to mutual funds. Um, so th- that's sort of my macro observation. Th- the question is, what's going to be the catalyst for that? Um, you know, there are reasons why people continue to do what they do. Um, you know, inertia, obviously, um, relationships is another reason. Uh, and, 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 and yet another reason is capital gains. What's interesting is that um, if we get a capital gains hike, Uh, That might induce advisors to try to capture those capital gains and take advantage of the lower rates that we have today. And that might be a catalyst for moving uh, money from actively managed mutual funds into lower cost ETFs. I think the big challenge in the advisory world and one that can be very easily solved if people were willing to make the change.
1: Now, and I think we have um, some new models that you're starting to collaborate on. Um, do you, and do you want to talk a little bit about some of these solutions that you're, you're working on?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, so this was, this was sort of the impetus to some extent, um, you know, and, and Wes and I sort of put our heads together and said, you know, hey, is there a way to effectively give uh, primarily advisors a portfolio of ETFs? Um, that is diversified across active strategies. So we're talking about primarily value, momentum, and quality. Um, and like I said, quality within value. Um, and, um, and, you know, target and, and a weighted average expense ratio that is demonstrably less than what they're paying now. What we came up with, depending on the stock allocation, because in general, the stock ETFs are more expensive than the bond ETF, um, is anywhere between 10 and 30 basis points for the portfolio. And, you know, we just think that that's a much better value than what a lot of advisors are doing now because it's cheaper, it's more tax efficient, um, and it's more diversified uh, across styles. A lot of advisors that I – a lot of the portfolios that I look at of advisors tend to be concentrated either in value or in growth, let's say, or in quality or whatever it is. And, you know, in general, they can get, uh, they can get a portfolio that gives them a lot less tracking error relative to the market. Um, without giving up the expected premium at the portfolio level, um, if they just diversify cross factors, so we put together these portfolios that that do all of those things, um, and um, and then you know we'll sort of see if there's interest in it.
1: And uh, and how do you think about like if people want to get access to them? Is it now they just call Unison uh, and? And they're getting—that's how they would mostly engage with these. Are there—is this—is this now live and ready, or is it still in development? How how do you think about it?
2: So it's not live and ready yet. Um, we're we um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to find partners to uh, to effectively post these strategies with platforms so that advisors can access them through the platforms. So they're not live; they're not available anywhere yet. But we are in, in the process of having those discussions. Um, and and hopefully we'll roll them out soon. Wes, yeah. I'm not sure if you if you want to add anything to that in terms of timing. No, I, I think uh,
0: just reiterate that that the end state here and the goal is to how do we develop a tax efficient, fee efficient, uh, diversified, transparent portfolio that's going to give an advisor or even an individual just super efficient exposure to the factors that you know we believe in at affordable costs and full transparency. And yeah, the n- next part of this lift is is just getting it into the platform so it's easier to access for for people out there like obviously we have the models and um you know we can deliver them but it, it's not done in such a way just yet where it's it's easy to access them at scale which we'd like to move forward with next
1: yeah and there's so many new model platforms delivery platforms uh i'm excited to see what you guys do with this i mean because it, it's going to be there's there's a there's a lot of different places that I'm sure would find some value, and, and people listening. Uh, if you have ideas, I'm sure everybody would be would welcome where to go with it. Um, you know, as as you think about the the future of this model world, Wes. Anything that you guys are, are seeing as, as how you want to support near and the and the whole program. How how are you thinking about it?
0: Uh, I think the same way that the near is. I mean, in the end, there, there's so many great tools out there in the ETF marketplace to to be able to deliver these super efficient, very transparent, very uh, tax efficient portfolios. And there's so much legacy junk out there um, in mutual fund land and just, and just advisors, they just have status quo problems. Uh, and I'm in agreement with near where if it is the case that we get indications that tax long-term cap gains would get bumped up to income rates here in 2022, there's going to be, you know, millions of reasons for a lot of wealthy people to realize tax gains this year and now free up that capital to go move into, you know, more efficient, lower cost systems like, like the one that we've uh, co-developed here. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, in a weird way, uh, higher taxes could actually be, in this case, better for, for both of our business opportunities because it, it kind of serves as a an opportunity to, to move from legacy uh, too expensive portfolios to much more efficient kind of new clean um, models. And, and, you know, so I, I don't ever want to hope for higher taxes. Uh, that's just bad karma. But there is an upside if it happens in, in our case. So we're kind of hedged to, to tax regimes, I would say.
1: You know, now one of these model delivery things that's getting a lot of folks. i, I feel feeling like it was discussed a little bit at, at Democratized Quant, and you're seeing it a lot is these platforms that offer direct custom indexing solutions away from ETFs and talk about tax loss overlays on these type of programs. What's your sense on the value added of those types of tax loss? overlays to individual stock portfolios versus the benefits that you know we talk about ETFs as like the tax efficient vehicle how do you think about that as the the tax the tax management side
0: i can speak to that near a little bit um at first so so we we've, we've been running direct indexing portfolios and doing a lot of tax harvesting for over 10 years now so very familiar with with what's going on there and the use cases i i think it's interesting Um, But it's also a lot of brain damage, and it's just ETFs are so efficient, so easy. Uh, You click a ticker, you buy a portfolio, the taxes manage arguably much more effectively if you're doing a strategy that has any sort of active turnover. And there's certainly use cases for direct indexing and tax loss harvesting tools, and I think it's definitely going to be part of the solution set on a go-forward basis But I I think it's going to be part of the marketplace. I don't think it will become the marketplace, mainly because, you know, I don't know how many people think they're going to get a a cheaper S&P 500 exposure when you can buy it for free already. And if you think you're going to get a lot of value from, like, essentially day trading S&P 500 stocks in your Schwab account with someone else's algorithm, who's you know, it's just like you can already buy this stuff from Vanguard for zero. Like, like what's the point is um, kind of one of my arguments. And then the other thing is if you actually are really rich, you can you can come talk to Ph.D. geeks like us. And there's other ways to access extreme tax efficiency with a mix of ETFs, leverage and SMA that I think can dominate any of the the typical things that are pitched out there. But that's that's only really useful for people that got serious tax problems. Um, so, anyways, it's interesting, but I think it's way overblown.
1: Near as you think about final three minutes here, any you know any other places that uh, sort of asset classes we haven't covered here on on things you're thinking about or things you think interesting for what's going on in in the markets today?
2: You know, the only thing I I, I might mention is um, is small caps. You know, they they've been. Um, what's interesting about small caps is. They've been unloved for a while. They've had a resurgence, obviously, recently, as value has. Uh, but they've been unloved for a while. And my sense is that a lot of people's portfolios are very, very heavily tilted towards the biggest, the mega stocks. And th- that's also an opportunity, I think, where people can look at their portfolios and say, hey, do I have some balance across market cap um, in my portfolio? And if not, um, despite the fact that we've had a run-up recently in small cash, I think it's a good opportunity longer term to try to find more balance in the portfolio. That's another aspect I think people can look at their portfolios and maybe and maybe you know re- rejigger it a bit.
1: Yeah, and, and U.S. small caps have really been on fire. You're starting to see a little bit internationally, emerging markets a bit. Um, but certainly not like the U.S. And, you know, the valuations, when you look at around the world, I mean, I I see some developed world baskets trading at 12 to 13 times. I mean, the European baskets around there, the Japan baskets around there, emerging markets, single digits in some of the small caps. So if you're looking for these value baskets, uh, I think that's the place to find them.
2: I agree. If you talk about expected returns, I mean, some of the expected returns in the small cap names outside of the U.S. are very compelling. And people should look.
1: Um, so, if people want more information on these new models you guys are collaborating on. Who should they? Who should they call?
2: They can reach out to either of us. Uh, they can reach out to, to this is near at Unison Advisors. They can reach out to Wes at Alpha Architect. Um, I, you know, we'll be we'll be happy to give anyone more information who wants to inquire.
1: Very good, Wes. Any closing thoughts? The last thirty seconds.
0: Uh, no, I agree uh, with what you said. Uh, don't go value investing in the United States market. If you expect to get the best deals, that's probably a good piece of advice that both you guys mentioned there makes sense to me.
1: Now, this is uh, always fun, always great to get Wes, uh, local Philadelphia suburb native here um, near. I think you're up, uh, (laughs) you're uh, you're in, in, in Rhode Island near. I am. It's, uh, well, it's always great chatting with both of you. You listen to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.
2: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.